Section 31 of Edward III by William Parsons Warburton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Fourth Decade. Chapter 3. Domestic Affairs. The narrative of the Spanish expedition has been dealt upon at some length, partly because the victory of Navarrete stands out prominently in the annals of English heroism, but chiefly because, to the secondary consequences of the campaign, as will presently be seen, is distinctly traceable the loss of all that England had gained in France by the Battle of Poitiers. But there were in the home history and domestic legislation of the decade, the external events of which we have just considered, many points of great interest and importance which cannot be passed over. A second outbreak of the plague occurred in the autumn of 1361, to which the illustrious Lancaster of the Rhine Neck fell a victim. The years 1362 to 1363 were as fruitful in legislation as 1352, 25 Edward III, and witnessed the same minute and vexatious interference with trade which characterized the enactments of that year. There was hardly an article of ordinary consumption which escaped being meddled with by the parliaments of these two years. In the first place, as above stated, the staple or privileged market, for reasons which it is difficult to comprehend, much more to justify, was fixed at Calais. And peculiar commercial advantages and immunities were granted to that port, a number of articles being specified which could not be sent out of England except thither. The result of this was that during the three years which the statute remained unrepealed, the whole of the export trade of this country was compelled to pass through Calais. These regulations were founded on the vicious and self-destructive principle of directly enhancing revenue at the expense of commerce, but it is difficult to see how they could have conduced even to that object in any way beyond affording a greater facility and certainty in collecting duties, an advantage which would probably be more than counterbalanced by the diminution of traffic consequent upon the harassing restraints to which enterprise was thereby subjected. But indeed, export trade was reduced to a minimum by prohibitions and all but prohibitory burdens. Manufactured wools, the cloths called worsteds, from a village of that name in Norfolk, butter and cheese, and a host of other English productions were absolutely forbidden to be sent out of the country, to the great injury and discouragement of the producers of those articles, and with the avowed intention of keeping down prices. In September 1362, even wool and wool fells were forbidden to be exported, but in the following month the prohibition was removed. The reason for its removal was stated with remarkable candor, namely that the king had regard to the great subsidy which the commons have granted him, now in this parliament, of wools, leather, and wool fells to be taken for three years. By ancient custom, the king's collectors levied half a mark from denizens and ten shillings from aliens, on every sack of wool and every three hundred wool fells. But the royal officers had learned from the results of the arbitrary imposition of the Maltolt how great an additional burden of taxation this commodity would bear, and at one critical time, 
that of the second French invasion, special duties were imposed amounting to the enormous amount of fifty shillings on the sack of three hundred and sixty-four pounds. The king could, in fact, by an understanding with the trade, increase at will the duty on wool. The merchants, securing the monopoly, were willing to pay the maltholt and recoup themselves out of the pocket of the consumer. The export of horses, hawks, plate, coin, and coal were forbidden or checked by prohibitory duties, and one restrictive ordinance of this date is of a remarkably comprehensive character, declaring that no wines, corn, beer, animals, whether flesh or fowl, horses, clergy, foreigners, or others, shall be allowed to pass out of the kingdom without special leave. The closest surveillance was exercised over the arrivals and departures. Even traders on business from Scotland were obliged to secure a safe conduct. Merchant ships crossing the channel were compelled to be armed or provided with an escort. But a strange light is thrown on the insecure condition of the interior of the country by the fact that traders could not venture to travel through England with their wagons of merchandise, except in large bodies accompanied by a strong guard of armed men like the caravans in the desert. While the foreign trade was thus minutely regulated, business transactions at home were even more inquisitorially and despotically dealt with. It seems to have been a general principle of legislation in those days to endeavor to protect the buyer against the producer, and with this object to mark off sharply the distinctions between the different trades, the reason being given the great mischiefs that have happened, of that the merchants called grocers do engross all manner of merchandise vendable, and suddenly do enhance the price of such merchandise within the realm, putting to sale by ordinance made betwixt them, called the fraternity and guild of merchants, the merchandises which be most dear, and keep in store the other, till the time that dearth or scarcity be of the same. It was therefore ordained that all merchants should deal in one kind of merchandise only, and make up their minds, betwixt then and Candlemas, what this kind should be. No one should meddle with the mystery of fishmongers except those that belong to it. No one should use the mystery of drapers without being apprenticed to it. So with the dealers in wine, and the dealers in poultry, and as for the goldsmiths, it was specially enacted that no goldsmith making white vessel shall meddle with gilding, nor they that do gild shall meddle with white vessel. These measures would not have been complete without an attempt at the always unprofitable and hopeless task of regulating personal expenditure by law. We find it embodied in a statute of the Parliament of 1363 that the poor come to eat and drink in the manner that pertaineth to them and not excessively. No servant was to wear a suit of clothes costing more than two marks or veils above twelve pence value. Shepherds and all manner of people attending to husbandry were not to wear any manner of cloth except blanket and russet wool of twelve pence a yard. It is a curious coincidence that just about this time Archbishop Islip addressed his famous remonstrance to King Edward on the abuses, and especially the foppery and the extravagance of the court, beginning, Domine mi rex utinam saperes, 
a document well worth study as coming from a favorable quarter, and yet giving a picture of the king's government very different from the current traditions which represent him as the idolized ruler of a happy and contented nation. All this was the work of the Parliament of 1362 to 1363, but they seem to have had some misgivings as to the policy or the practicality of carrying out these regulations, for they recommend that the things agreed to should be put by ordinance and not by statute, in order that if there were anything to amend, it might be amended in the next Parliament. It is somewhat of a relief to find that in that next Parliament, many of the most oppressive and injudicious of these enactments were actually repealed, but it was not till 1365 that the staple was removed from Calais. It is somewhat remarkable that after the siege of that city, we hear little or nothing more of firearms in the wars of this reign. The importance of archery was never more conspicuous than in the Battle of Navarrete, but it would seem from a letter of King Edward to the sheriffs of the counties in 1363 that there was a tendency among the people to a diminishing trust in this arm. Whereas, so runs the circular, the people of this country did commonly exercise themselves in the art of archery, whereas now, as if entirely putting aside the said art, the same people take to the throwing of stones, wood, and iron, and some to handball, football, stick-play, and to the fighting of dogs and cocks. It is to be proclaimed that every man in the country of able body on feast days shall use bows and arrows in his games, and give up those vain games under pain of imprisonment. Another memorable fact in the history of the memorable year, 1362, was the parliamentary ordinance that the English, instead of the French language as heretofore, should be used in pleadings in the courts of law. In Statute 1, C. 15, 36 Edward III, the change is said to have become necessary, because the French tongue is much unknown in England, so that the people which do implead or be impleaded in the king's court or in the courts of other have no knowledge or understanding of that which is said for them or against them by their sergeants or other pleaders. See below where some account is given of the way in which English became the national language. It must be borne in mind that at the date of this statute commanding the public forensic use of the English tongue, Wycliffe and Chaucer the fathers of English prose and of English poetry, had already begun their task of creating an English literature. But of all the legislative measures of this period, the most notable was the Statute of Kilkenny, passed at a Parliament held in that town in the last year of the decade, in the Lent session of 1367. This famous or infamous enactment gathered up into one and recapitulated with additional aggravations and insults, all the former oppressive, exasperating, and iniquitous ordinances by which English legislation for Ireland had hitherto been disgraced. In the reign of Edward II, the disaster of Bannockburn and the patent incapacity of the government had kindled expectations in the hearts of the Irish of uprooting forever the hated alien rule. But these hopes of national emancipation were disappointed, though under the brief reign of Edward Bruce, 
the area occupied by the English of the Pale was considerably contracted, and a large number of the Irish regained possession of their lands. Among the earliest measures passed in the reign of Edward III was a statute directed against absenteeism, obliging all Englishmen who were Irish proprietors either to reside on their estates or to provide soldiers to defend them. But this enactment was unproductive of good results. The O'Neills drove the colonists out of the liberty of Ulster, and the English de Burs, so far from helping to uphold English ascendancy, appropriated to themselves the entire lordship of Connaught, made common cause with the native tribes, and adopting their dress, language, and customs became Hibernus Ipsis Hiberniores, threw off their allegiance to King Edward, and bade defiance to the king's authority. Thus it came to pass that before many years of this reign had elapsed, more than a third part of the territories of the Pale were again in the hands of its original possessors. Had English statesmen contemplated only the alternatives of the enslavement or of the extermination of the conquered inhabitants, had they on the one hand expected to be able to reduce them to the condition of helots, indifferent to freedom or incapable of resistance, or on the other hand, indulged the hope that the Irish would decay and disappear before the colonists, as savage aborigines melt away before a stronger race, their policy would indeed be explicable. But the native race was endowed with far too much vitality for the latter fate, and with far too much pride, courage, elasticity, and genius for the former, and the half-measures which were adopted tended only to exasperate and not to coerce or overawe. Edward III inherited the barbarous and iniquitous traditions of English rule in Ireland, but he improved upon them. He ordered all his officers in that country who had Irish estates to be removed and give place to Englishmen with no Irish ties. He next declared void every grant of land in Ireland since the time of Edward II and made new grants of the lands thus recovered to the crown. The tendency of this monstrous measure was to create two more antagonistic parties in Ireland, destined by their bitter dissensions to bring about the result that ere long all the king's land in Ireland was on the point of passing away from the crown of England, namely, the English by blood, as the established settlers were called, and the English by birth, or new grantees. Some of the chief of the former, in despair of a career or even of a quiet life at home, were about to bid good-bye to Ireland and seek their fortunes elsewhere, when they were arrested by a proclamation making it penal for any English subject capable of bearing arms to leave the country. In 1357 was passed the monstrous enactment already described, forbidding marriage and gossiprid between English and Irish. In 1359, Edward forbade the election of any mere Irish to the office of mayor, bailiff, or other civil post of authority. But the evils against which these statutes were directed continued to increase. The English by blood became more and more intimately connected and identified with the native Irish, and the English by birth became more and more powerless to maintain the English ascendancy, till at last in 1361 
the king determined on sending over a viceroy of the blood royal and appointed to the post his son Lionel, created shortly afterwards Duke of Clarence, whom he had married to Elizabeth de Burr, daughter and representative of the last Earl of Ulster. But though Prince Lionel on his arrival took the precaution of forbidding any man born in Ireland to approach his camp, his position soon became so critical that the king issued writs commanding all the absentee Irish lords to hasten to Ireland to the assistance of the prince, for that his very dear son and his companions in Ireland were in imminent peril. The next step was the passing of the Statute of Kilkenny. It reenacted the prohibition of marriage and foster nursing, rendered obligatory the adoption of the English language and customs, forbade the national games of hurlings and coitings, and the use of the ancient Gaelic code called the Senkis Moor, a code by which the native Brahones or judges of the Irish Seps had decided causes among them since the time of the conversion of the race to Christianity in the 5th century. The English by birth were no longer to be called in derision English Hobbs, nor the English by blood Irish Dogs. But the statute contained no prohibition of the expression mere Irish as applied to the Irish by birth and by blood. Reflecting on the long series of efforts made by the English to legislate for Ireland and the sum of their past and present results, one is tempted to parody in a reverse sense the well-known couplet of Goldsmith, reader's note, actually Samuel Johnson, and exclaim, How much of all that human hearts endure Kings and their laws can cause and cannot cure. End of section 31